We'll come to the end of chapter 10 today. We will finish out through chapter end. Chapters 8 through 10 have really functioned as their own uh, little uh, section here. And in this section, there's a threefold announcement of Jesus' death and resurrection, that he will suffer, that he will be rejected, that he will die, and that he will rise again. We've seen it happen twice already. The third announcement will be laid out for us now. Jesus is clearly laying out for us what his mission is, why it is that he came to earth. And we'll get even greater insight and clarity this morning as we look at our text. So our text today starts with that third statement of Jesus coming to his death, really since Peter has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord in chapter 8, that indeed Jesus Christ is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. With that confession, Jesus has done two things. One, we just said, he began to explain his mission, that he would suffer, that he would be rejected, that he would die, and that he would rise again. That is why he has come. But secondly on that, he has taken that and started to explain what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that we would follow him on the way, as he is on the way to the cross, on the way to Jerusalem, that we would follow him on the way. And our discipleship will reflect what will look an awful lot like his mission of, of service, of being made low, of taking up your cross in order to enter glory, in order to be great, in order to be first, we shall be last. And we'll see that indeed Jesus' mission is distinct in that his mission is redemptive. His mission is substitutionary and it's his alone that is such. But our discipleship should reflect the suffering, should reflect the cross that Jesus teaches not just as a principle but that he incarnates for us. Then we come to chapter 10, we've looked and it's looked more narrowly, kind of narrowed in on discipleship. So what does it mean for us? How should we think about marriage as disciples of God, as members of the kingdom of God? What should we think about marriage? How should we think about children? How should we think about possessions? How should we think about entering the kingdom? And how should we think about our position in the kingdom All those will culminate for us in this chapter here as we come to the end of chapter 10. All right, so let's look together. Verse 32. They are on the road. They are on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking out in front of them. That little comment there, we see in Isaiah, it tells us that Jesus will set his face like a flint. All along, he's on the way. He's on the way to Jerusalem. We see now a a determination about his mission as he strides out in front of them, resolved, set for Jerusalem. Passover is coming, and so uh, the, the roads to Jerusalem would be full of journeyers, travelers, Jewish people making their way to Jerusalem for Passover week. And so you'll see that in this text as there's many observers around. At this point, Jesus says his name has a lot of notoriety. And here he comes. They know that there's conflict brewing. They know that, that something is up. There is intensity growing in the air. We can see, sense it. We can feel it in the language that Mark gives us. And here is Jesus, though, striding out in front, determined 
to go forward to the mission that God has called him to before the foundation of the earth. In the reaction of both his disciples and those around him, some are astonished, amazed that he'd be walking into Jerusalem, the, the hotbed of his opposition, where the scribes and the Pharisees hold the power and the authority that he is challenging. The disciples themselves, we'll see, are still confused. Is he going to establish his messianic kingdom right now or not? But whatever, they sense the intensity. They sense his determination. It says they are afraid. They're astonished. They're afraid as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And then he gives us this third announcement of his mission. Verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. There's a lot more detail given in this uh, foretelling of his death and resurrection. Enough that a lot of critical scholars will say, oh, this was added after the fact because it's, it's too accurate to what is about to take place. And yet we see that Jesus knows what lies before him. One of the things that you'll notice there is that he adds the, the phrase that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. We see that both the Jewish people, his own people, will reject him. And yet they don't really have a means of punishing him like the Gentiles would. And so they deliver him over to the Gentiles. The weight of that statement. <clears throat> the people of Israel... God's people in the Old Testament were always organized around the presence of God. As they were left in the wilderness, the temple was in their midst and they would camp around it. They've always established themselves around the presence of God. And so the temple would be in the middle. There you would have the temple and every, each tribe surrounding it ordered very um, in a specific arrangement so that God is at its center. And at the center of that then you would have the temple and in the center of that you'd have the holy place and the holy of holies. And so regularly they would take an animal and they would sacrifice that animal and the blood of that animal would be wiped on the mercy seat. As a sacrifice, a picture of, of propitiation, of a sacrifice in their place. But there would be a second sacrifice. And the animal would come and this one would not be put to death. And what the priest would do is offering the first sacrifice. Now he has this other animal before him. And he would place his hands on the back of this animal. And it was called the scapegoat. And it was a picture of expiation. And that the, he was placing the sins of the people as a picture on the back of this scapegoat. And then this scapegoat was taken and he was driven outside of the camp, away from the presence of God, into the darkness, it says. That's the exact imagery that we get here, that he was, Jesus is going to be delivered over unto the Gentiles. He was going to be pushed out away from the presence of God, from the covenant people, from the presence of his God, his Father. He would be the scapegoat, driven away. And so they hear it. it was, no, no wonder they're afraid. What does all of this mean? He'll be turned over 
to the Gentiles. He will die. He will rise again. And we get a clearer picture of the mission of Jesus Christ. Well, if you remember, Jesus has announced his death and resurrection twice already. And so far, the disciples are a big O for two on how they respond. The first time, remember, Peter says, I won't let you do this. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're you're giving me the same temptation that Satan gave me in the wilderness. This is God's plan. A little later, he announces it again. And the disciples go off privately and start arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The third time now, he announces it. And we see they're about ready to go 0 for 3. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) It's a funny way to go about it. Before we ask the question, we want you to say that you're going to say yes. Like he's some genie about ready to answer their question. Maybe you've done that to people before. You've had a kid do it to you. Like if you're nervous that you're not going to get the answer you want, you kind of start laying a lot of groundwork before you ask the question. As an adult, maybe you do it this way. You go and you're like, okay, I'm going to ask you something. Before you answer, I want you to consider. I just want you to think because you know the answer is probably not going to go in your favor. My kids have actually done this to me exactly where they want to stay up past their bedtime and watch a movie, but they know I'm going to say no. They're just like, will you please say yes to what we're about to ask? (laughs) Because they just want me to commit to a yes before I know what's going on. And so they do that to Jesus, and Jesus responds, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Before I commit, (laughs) what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. How are they missing this so badly? They're not like us. We learn everything the first time, right? The disciples, it takes them a little longer. That was sarcastic, if you know. They ask, when you come and you set up your messianic kingdom, when you will get into Jerusalem and establish that kingdom, we want to have the two best seats. The, the first place of honor at the right hand, the second place of honor at the left hand. Will you give us those seats? We want to have some, some fame. We want to have influence. We want to have position. We want to be next to the guy who's got all the power and the influence. You know, some people just have a knack for that. That They, they find the person with, with the influence, with the power, with the money, and they, they cozy up to them. They want to be sitting there where everyone will see them. <clears throat> when, I, when I first started seminary, it was down to, I went to a small church that was um, a, a great little church, but the church that housed the seminary was a pretty large church, and they had a singles group. So they had a bunch of singles, and then a bunch of the little churches came. And Of course, a bunch of seminary guys, they're all going to the singles group, and you can imagine they got, you know, one thing in their mind. Everyone's checking everyone out. Well, I didn't really attend the singles group except for one time. Um, so I went, there was a family that had a really large home. They were housing actually a Christmas party. I don't know, there's maybe 60, 70 singles kind of spread out in this house. And I only knew one person in the group, and it was an older guy 
not older, like three or four years older than me, who was in the seminary and actually kind of helped run the, the singles group. So the house is, is spread out. People are sitting on the floor. There's couches and chairs around. And kind of right in the corner where you can kind of see the dining room, the living room, the whole place, they had this little bar with bar stools. <clears throat> and so I'm sitting next to Mike, my friend. We're chatting. Someone else comes up and talks to us, and we're just sitting there chatting. All of a sudden, he goes, all right, let's get started. And all of a sudden, 70 people turn and look. And here in the middle of the room are two bar stools, me and Mike, and Mike just starts teaching. So it'd be like if you came up and just stood beside me while I preached, and you just stand here. I felt so uncomfortable. I mean, everyone's eyes are on you. It's this weird singles event. So everyone's checking everyone out. And I'm just sitting there like, I can't look up. I can't, you know, I'm sitting right here at the right hand of this man while he speaks and speaks. Well, I got tons of attention that way. It wasn't attention I wanted. This is what James, this is what John are asking for. When you're setting up your throne, we want to be right there. Right there, we're getting some of the glory, basking in it. And Jesus <clears throat> responds to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand. You don't know what you are asking here. And he asks a rhetorical question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? He gives two pictures here. One is the cup, the cup of, of wrath. We see that imagery. Jesus is going to pray, let this cup pass from me, of judgment, of wrath. We'll see the, that picture in Revelation of the wrath that overflows from the cup. You say, are, are you going to drink, can you drink this wrath, this judgment that is coming? Or again, the picture of the baptism, that again, that, that pouring out of justice, that pouring out of wrath that Jesus is going to receive, which he's going to undergo. He's going to be marked by the iniquity, become sin for the sinner. And so he asks this rhetorical question. And again, James and John have their minds set on glory. And so they answer what should be a rhetorical question with verse 39. Yes, we're able. We can do it. And Jesus responds, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And we get a little insight into discipleship here because he's telling them, <clears throat> all right, <clears throat> at some level, yes, you will share in the cup. You will share in the baptism. This has been his message of discipleship all along. It is to become the least. It's to that you also will suffer. That you also will face shame. That you must take up your cross and follow me. True discipleship follows Jesus and it follows him on the way to the cross. And so in their response, he, he tells them, you don't really know what you're asking for. And yes, at some level, the, the call to discipleship will reflect Jesus Christ and his mission. 
We'll see the difference highlighted a little later, but the difference is, is that our suffering is never redemptive for someone else. It's never substitutionary for somebody else. It cannot atone for sin. And yet the path to glory is the same, and it comes through humility. It comes through service. That is what it looks like to belong to the kingdom. And so he tells, yes, at some level you will share with me. But it, Jesus says it's, it's on the Father who will bestow rewards. But it's done in secret. I tell you to come follow me, not, not so you can receive glory, but in obedience to me. In obedience, come and follow me. Well, the other ten disciples hear about it. And it says that they are indignant with James and John. My guess is not that like they think, what a bad question. My guess is they're indignant because they want the seats too, the, the right hand and the left hand seat. And, and so there's this misunderstanding again. The same offer Satan made to Jesus of glory without the cross. The same thing we can so often want in our discipleship is all of the benefits without following Christ, without first being made low. And so Jesus is going to address now all the disciples. Verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones ex exercise authority over them. <clears throat> he uses here kind of a pejorative statement, those who consider themselves rulers. So he's saying not, not even like they are actually earned their authority or have real authority but they get in that position just so they can lord it over their people. Not to serve the people, but just to enrich themselves, to empower themselves. It's hard not to be cynical sometimes when you look at, I'm not going to get all political here, but even when you look at our own political system and you think all of these public servants that somehow when they leave office are worth like tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> Their public service somehow really enriches them. And he's saying that, that's what, of this age, of this world, those in authority, they want to lord over others. They want to increase their status. They want to use their position to gain for themselves. They're not serving others. They're lording over others. They're increasing their status. And then he says in verse 43, but this shall not be so among you. It's a really forceful language that is used there. You could throw a couple exclamation points on it. This is not how it works in the kingdom. This is not how it is to work in my church. We don't use our authority. We don't use our status. We don't use our talents, our abilities to lord over others, to enrich ourselves, to increase our name. We use them to serve others. I mean, I'm preaching to myself first in the church. It's not to enrich. It's not to climb on other people's backs to get higher. It is to be a servant to all. It will not be named among you. The church is not to be marked like this age. The kingdom, the church is to be different. It is to be marked by humility and service from the top up. That those with the most influence and, and the most ability and, and power and authority would have the greatest amount of service and service to others. 
It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Then he gets even more forceful. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Literally a slave, someone with no rights at all. I mean, he's hit this how many times from chapter 8 through chapter 10? That the mark of greatness, the mark of a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, is humility and service. It is being last in the idea of considering others' needs before your own. That that your influence increases as you're able to serve more in a people in a different, in a deeper way. Not that you have more people under you serving you and building you up and meeting your needs. And the church should be marked by that, that we serve one another. And those with greater opportunities are able to serve more. And that, that there's no more stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man than that distinction of greatness being marked by humility and service and service to all, even to the least of these. Jesus continues in verse 45, For even the Son of Man, referring now to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came again, not to give himself of an immediate throne right here, set up his messianic kingdom and, and reign over everybody. Yes, that's going to happen. But he came to serve, to be a servant of all. They're wanting right now, without the cross, to reign with Christ. And he's saying, no, I came to be a servant of all. I'm going to lay down my life for these people. That's what marks being a disciple of Christ. That's what marked the life of Jesus Christ. And we've seen it in miracle after miracle, haven't we? Of Jesus caring for the least of these when others are wanting to ignore them. And then he says to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we have here kind of our first glimpse of what his death will really do. Of its substitutionary redemptive quality to his death. There was an early church heresy that hung on for quite some time that he's paying a ransom. It means that he's paying the ransom to Satan. That we're in bondage and so he's sort of paying a ransom to Satan. <clears throat> that, that's not correct. As we heard, said in Sunday school, he, he's more powerful than Satan. He's not negotiating with Satan. He crushes the serpent's head. That's what happens in his cross in the resurrection. He shuts down the works of darkness. He's paying the ransom, the debt of our sin before God. The wrath of God that we deserve. That God's holiness demands be poured out upon us. He's paying that ransom. He's accepting that wrath. Putting that upon himself. That we might know mercy. That we might be free from the weight of that judgment. That's the cup. That's the baptism. And he's doing it for us. Verse 45 there really puts... In a nutshell, the mission of Jesus Christ, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We now move to this final miracle, and we'll work through this quickly. Jesus heals 
blind Bartimaeus. So he is continuing on the road to Jerusalem. If you read through Mark, obviously in preaching, I've read through it several times now. It feels at first like this is a weird place to jam in a miracle. Like we've already seen a bunch of miracles. Now he's on the road to Jerusalem. Chapter 11 begins with the triumphal entry. Why sort of try to squeeze one more miracle in here? And I think as you go through it, you see it's what Mark likes to do is to put two stories back to back that really stand in juxtaposition to one another or one clarifies the other. So remember, he's traveling. It's Passover. People are around. There's lots of people around. The intensity is growing. It it seems to be growing. People know Jesus is on his way here to Jerusalem. And in the crowd, as he's passing by, is a blind beggar, we're told, named Bartimaeus. Interesting note, this is the only miracle in Mark where the person that Jesus heals is named. We always have a We've known like a father's name or something, but this is the first time when the person being healed is, is actually named as, as Peter, obviously the one who probably saw this firsthand. It's burned into his memory. It says, when he heard, Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, he cried out and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A couple of things here which kind of cause us to wonder, give us what insight Bartimaeus had for this blind beggar. The son of David, a term that is used of Jesus often, but much more often in Matthew than in Mark. It's sort of unique, not completely unique, but more unique in Mark to this call the son of David. And to put them together, Jesus, son of David, he, he understands this is the prophesied one. This is the Messiah. This is the, the son of David that was prophesied, who is both David's son and David's Lord. Jesus, son of David. And then the cry, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The people try to stop him. The disciples, others stop. Jesus is is on a mission. He is is headed to Jerusalem. There's a lot going around him. Here is a man who's going to have as low a status as anyone. A blind beggar who's completely dependent on someone to provide for everything he needs. So they're trying to stop him, but he won't be stopped. And so he cries out again, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49 says, and Jesus stopped. Everything, I'm just picturing it, everything comes to a standstill. He says, call him. So they called the blind man saying to him, hey, take heart, get up. He's calling you, he's telling you to come. The man, probably laying there under an old tattered blanket or cloak of some sort, throws it off, springs up, and he comes to, G- to see Jesus. Jesus asks the exact same question that he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? You see, here's how the disciples came to Jesus. They came this way. Hey, whatever I ask, please say yes. Tell me you're going to say yes. Give it to us. You're going to give it to us, right? Here's how the blind beggar comes. King. Sovereign one. (laughs) 
Jesus, son of David, the promised one, have mercy on me. How many times have we seen in Mark's gospel, this is how we come to Christ. With empty hands, pleading, have mercy on me. Not, I deserve to be acknowledged, Jesus. I'm bringing a whole lot to the table, Jesus. But no, have mercy on me. And, and again and again, the crowds face the same thing. Maybe you face that you say to yourself, I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. I, I don't have influence. I, do, I don't have anything to offer. That's what the crowds see. When it's the children, the disciples are saying, hey, stay away. He's busy. When it's the, the leper who's unclean, you say, no, 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 no. You stay away. When it's the lady with the, the discharge of blood, she has to sneak in because they don't want him near. Jesus, when it's blind Bartimaeus, it's no, no, you stay away. But Jesus says, no, come to me. Again, we highlight the mother who is pleading for the sake of her children. The one whom Jesus says, well, first I need to feed the children before I give, I'm not going to feed the dogs. The woman insists, well, even the dogs get the crumbs. And remember, we talked about this. What she's doing is, is she is being persistent. She is coming to Christ, but not based on her own worth or her own merit. And when Jesus says to her, you're, you don't deserve it, you're not worthy of it, she just agrees with him. I know, you're right. But you, your sacrifice is worthy. Your mercy is dispensed to those who come with empty hands. This has been the method. This has been the picture time and time again. That our uncleanness, that our lack of power, influence, or worth, or whatever we say to ourselves to kind of put ourselves down, doesn't drive us away from Christ, but keeps driving us back to him that with empty hands we may receive his mercy. Because it's the least of these that will be the greatest in the kingdom. We come with empty hands, just like a child with nothing to offer. Those are the ones who receive the kingdom. And we have a picture of it here. And so he pleads, have mercy on me. <clears throat> Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? <clears throat> And with the answer of the disciples still ringing in our heads, real ringing in our minds, they want the best seats at the table. We hear from the blind man, he says, Rabbi. Now, this, you can't see it in the English translation, but it's a different word than is used anywhere else up to this point in reference to rabbi. Rabbi simply means teacher, teacher or honored one. Here, the, the word is Rabboni, so it's, it's close to it, but it's a much kind of fuller, more personal, intense, reverent type of way of, of saying it. <clears throat> it's the same word that Mary Magdalene will, will kind of, in surprise, exclaim as she's headed to the tomb, and on resurrection morning, she encounters Jesus. And most commentators who know the language much better than I do, Say it should be translated, my master and my Lord. It's, what can I do for you? And he says, my master and my Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Has made you well. Sozo is the word there. Literally, it saved you. I think there's physical, there is spiritual healing being taught here. That this man with empty hands comes and asks for the mercy of Jesus Christ and faith. Our Lord makes him well, makes him whole. He says, go your way. And you can just imagine, blind eyes open. He's going to go take off running and see the sights. He's going to go tell everyone about it. People who gave him a hard time before, he's going to go let them know, I can see now. No, what's he do? And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him. Where? On the way. On the way to Jerusalem. On the way to the cross. On the way to the mission Jesus was going to accomplish. What we have in this final text before Jesus will reach Jerusalem in chapter 11 is once again this picture of kingdom greatness that Jesus himself demonstrates as one who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to serve the least of these and to lay his life down. And then we have this picture of a disciple what it means to come to Christ and Bartimaeus who comes and says, son of David, king, Messiah, my only hope, have mercy on me. And then in faith, he follows after Christ. Let the Lord grant us this sort of kingdom character, both in our authority and in our service. Let's pray.